All right, welcome back to Building a Fighter. My name is Dr. Austin Shane, sports chiropractor in Scottsdale, Arizona. With me, as always, badass strength coach in Denver, Colorado, Alex Friedman. Alex, how are you doing today? Doing well, man. It's a good Sunday. Good lazy Sunday recuperating and getting some couple of honey-do lists done. Yes, sir. Tom Brady's losing. I don't, I, I don't know. Uh, you can never count Tom Brady out. I know. I just got literally, as I started the podcast, I got the update saying Tom Brady cuts the lead to seven with under four minutes left. I'm like, oh, he's 100% winning this game. <laughs> we'll see. We will see. <laughs> uh, but today, what I want to talk about, what we want to talk about is a tweet that Mike Boyle just threw out there that caused, caused a little bit of a stir in the strength conditioning community and in the healthcare community, um, talking about orthopedic costs of exercises. Um, so, the one thing that he had said was programming 101 lesson 14 orthopedic cost in quotes, the long-term effects of an exercise on the body. Think of this as wear and tear strength training is like putting miles on your car. You can't roll back the odometer when choosing exercises, consider the long-term costs. Um, and he, he got berated, <laughs> absolutely lit up by, uh, by some of the other bigger names, um, in the strength conditioning field, as well as a lot of physical therapists went at him. A lot of the people that come from the pain science background, um, where they don't think that anything is bad for you ever. Um, they, they started going at him and talking about different exercises and how exercise, no matter what is good for you. It doesn't matter what you do. It's just the only thing that could be wrong is that you use too much, you use too much load at that point in time. That's what pain science thinks. Um, and, and I want to do this podcast because I'm actually on Mike Boyle's side on this. Um, I, it's something that I'm passionate about, something I've thought about tremendously um, or a lot throughout my new career and talking about how I think there are better exercises than others. I, I, I know there's a lot of people that say like, there's no bad exercises. There's a thousand percent bad exercises out there, right? Like I'm not going to make a 90 year old back squat, uh, uh, 185 to 200 pounds that when she can barely do a goblet squat correctly. Right. That's what I'm talking about when I say a bad exercise, right? It's not, it doesn't necessarily have to be the example I always use of doing some sort of like heavy squat on a fucking BOSU ball with strobe glasses on, right? It can just be poorly chosen exercises for that given time. I think that's what Mike meant. And that's what I mean when I say orthopedic cost is a real thing, right? If we are actually putting a lot of, if we actually are strength training, if we're using this for athletes, right? We're lifting at the highest of levels. We are putting load on a body that probably wasn't designed to do that type of load. Thinking about when I work with my NFL linemen, right? Like my, my Sean, one of my linemen, he hit 365 for trips on power cleans. Our human body probably wasn't designed to do that. I would assume that's an orthopedic cost. That's a cost of being great. That's a cost of high performance. And that's something I'm very passionate about is high performance isn't always healthy. That's where orthopedic cost comes in. I think for our athletes, Mike is hundred percent right in thinking that there's an orthopedic cost. You want to prolong the career of your athletes. That's why you want to do the exercises that are going to give us the best bang for our buck in power generation, in force generation, in joint stability. And, and I'm kind of sick of people getting hate over this concept and all the pain science people just popping up out of nowhere because it, it's a real thing that just because it isn't a hundred percent backed in the literature, it doesn't mean that we don't see trends over time. Yes. <laughs> yes. In general, a hundred percent, the 
exercise selection matters in a program. And I, it's kind of crazy to me that people will go um, above and beyond to ridicule the important piece of a program such as exercise selection. And I understand the point of view, like a squad is a squad is a squad for most people, but we can still be tactical and in, in, for lack of a better term, more creative in our exercise selection to get two or three benefits rather than just one benefit. You know, like um, for me, as far as having orthopedic costs, there are a lot of exercises that can cause long-term damage or just way heavier on an athlete's body over a period of time. But what exercise selection for me is really about is checking multiple boxes as well as creating the most effective stimulus that you can. And in that sense of the word, there are a lot of exercises that do a better job than other exercises. And so I think you see that when, you know, half of the strength coach population seems like their job is undoing the damage from other strength coaches. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a hundred percent a problem that our own field has created in and of itself is yes, we want to create adaptation. And yes, we need to load up athletes in, in some instances and contexts, but that's not every context. You know, that's not every single time we come in, we need a high intensity workout. It's not every single time we come in, we need to do barbell back squat. It's not every time we come in, we need to do rear foot elevated squats either. You know, so it's just a lot of time and place and a lot of, in my opinion, what Instagram and social media is famous for is just um, creating extremes and then feeding off of that energy, right? Because for sure. it's a fairly easy rule of thumb that exercise selection is important within a program and it's a fairly easy rule of thumb that some exercises cost more um, orthopedically, cost more energy system demands, cost more um, time, technique, refinement, different movements and different exercises with your body cost more. I mean, if you want to extrapolate it even to the sports sense, look at MMA. Shelf life of an MMA player or MMA athlete is way different than a baseball player. Yep. It's way different than, you know, somebody that plays table tennis. Well, and even in, even in baseball, the shelf life of a right fielder is way different than the shelf life of a catcher, yeah. right? <laughs> like it's, it is, it's literally just the demand on your body and the demand on your body at which you, any sort of exercise, right? And I want to get it. I want to get the point across that. I think all exercise is good exercise. That's something that I've come around on a lot. I used to, I'm, I'm never the guy that comments on anything because that's not what I like to do, but I would, I'd look at a fucking video and be like, look at this fucking dumbass. He's, is, he's trying to th- pull 450 pounds and his back's rounding a little bit. Like what the fuck? And I, that we know from research that no matter what you want to do at a deadlift, your back is going to round a little bit, right? If we're, if you're pulling heavy weight, your back is going to get into lumbar flexion. Um, but Exercise is exercise and exercise is good exercise, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's not also an orthopedic, an orthopedic cost associated with what you're doing. Right. I think exactly the exact um, analogy that he used was good where it's like when you work out and especially working out for high performance, you're putting miles on a car. It's, it's literally just miles. How many miles can that car take? Well, guess what? If you're fine tuning a fucking Ferrari, Ferraris don't do a lot of miles, bro. <laughs> like, yeah. like Ferraris don't go as far as a Toyota Camry does or an old school Ford Bronco. 
right? So it's, it's what can the chassis sustain? What can the chassis take? And what are the costs? What's the cost at which we're going down or what's the cost at which we're putting on top of it? So if what I would equate it to for sticking with the car analogy is, am I driving on the highway? That's going to be probably a little bit less of an orthopedic cost, or am I going off-roading? A Ford Bronco can do both, right? Which one, one of them is probably going to wear out the tires. One of them is probably going to wear out the body. One of them is probably going to cause some sort of a, a fucking windshield chip. The other one probably is not going to be as likely to do that. That's what it comes down to with exercise selection, right? It's it's literally just there's easier ways to get the same goal in. Miles are going to be miles. How can we make the most for the miles that we have to put onto our body? Yeah, and that's an interesting point because that's the one you know little piece of thing. If I wanted to pick a a piece to be contrarian <laughs> about, is he says you can't roll back the odometer, and within a sense, yes, you can't roll it back, but you can start to make your miles worth more. Just the point that you just made, you know, even right. if even if I'm an athlete that's only done, you know, weightlifting for my performance uh, benefit, I haven't really done other avenues of strength and conditioning. And if we see weightlifting as a, a damaging um, endeavor, I can still come back from that low back injury. I can still uh, train smarter. Now my knees will last longer. I think that's the the one piece I would disagree with is there are ways to come back or to prolong your shelf life or to, um, undo some of the damage, if you will. I think there's a lot of opening for that and a lot of opening for better movement, better health and wellness along the side of high performance. So I don't think there's quite a hard and fast rule of like this, you know, power clean is going to cost your body X or whatever uh, that being said. But I do think what we do chronically is going to create a lot of stress and adaptations and a reset period, or even just a change in our training methods will lead to um, possibly like a, a rolling back effect or a prolonging effect. So I think there is something to be said about that, but in the moment, in the short term, in the micro cycle, um, absolutely exercise selection has a, a orthopedic cost. Well, and on top of that, it's changing the mindset behind it as going from harm to efficiency too. That's what I think about, right? You can do any exercise anyway. <laughs> Honestly, you can Sometimes it harms you. Sometimes it doesn't, right? If you do it a Jefferson curl with a fuck ton of pounds and you try to lift that up, it's probably going to hurt your back if you didn't progressively get to that point. But that point completely aside, just because we can pick whatever exercise we want does not mean that exercise is the most efficient way to load the joint, right? Exactly what you were saying. And that's what it comes down to. We've, we've gotten so far in my mind, at least we've gotten so far down the line of, Hey, every extra, all exercise is okay. Everything's fine. They, it, all we need to do is talk to the athletes and we need to like get them on board and just try to try to program them in. Right. It's more of a talking thing. At least that's what a lot of what healthcare and strength conditioning has gone to, right? It's a lot more relationship building than focusing on the hardcore X's nose, which is a good thing. But I think because of that, we're focusing so much on, oh, any exercise is okay. We've gotten away from, yeah, okay is fine, but what's efficient? What's the best, right? Right. I 100% think that, that strength conditioning has swayed, swayed that way. It's almost like as a coach, it's like, what can I convince these kids or this, these athletes what can I convince for them is the best? It's not necessarily like, what is the best? It's like, I'm going to do what I do and I'm just going to convince people it's the best, right? Because it's become such a, um, you know, like you said, relational or like fast paced silver tongue type of profession. It's like, let me just talk my way into 
choosing X exercise. And like, again, there probably are some benefits to each and every individual exercise, but there's one best, right? It's not like right. there's multiple bests. Right. Exactly. And you get people like the Joel Seedman's that you like your eccentric isometric 90 degree angle. She never break nineties and stuff like that. And you read his Instagram posts or you read people talking about getting trained by him. And it's almost like he's convincing you. This is the way it has to be right. This has to be the best. And in reality, we know like, Hey, that, that probably isn't the best. The same thing can be applied for these people that are talking about the different exercises for orthopedic costs, right? What, what I think when I think about orthopedic cost is what's the most, what can I pick the most efficient exercise for that athlete to generate the minimal effective dosage or the stimulus that I need to progress that athlete forward or that person forward. This concept doesn't need to just be for our elite athletes. This can be for every single person that trains, right? It's orthopedic cost literally just breaks down to minimal effective dosage in my mind. That's all it is. And if you're picking these out, outrageous exercises, say you do want to pick a heavy ass Jefferson curl, that's fine. But is that going to be the minimal effective dose needed for that person in front of you to sustain the results that you're looking to gain? Yeah. That's what you need to think about when you're picking the exercises that you want to pick, right? That is orthopedic cost. And if, if you're thinking about just trying to throw in any exercise you want, just because, hey, all exercise is good exercise, you're probably doing a detriment to the person in front of you because you're not spending the time to think, what's the best exercise for that person right in front of me? Right. And as, I don't know, as quote unquote scientists, as exercise scientists, everything, people want to be so reductionist to say that, well, everything else hold it held equal. It doesn't matter if you do a goblet squat or back squat, right? But like in the reality, like of context and situational awareness, there's no if everything else is equal. Right. You know? And so yeah. what you pick does matter and how much of it matters. It's just how much does each relative piece weigh in the ultimate, you know, calculation of orthopedic costs, right? I can do a trap bar deadlift, which a lot of people would think is safer than a straight bar uh, deadlift, right? Mm -hmm. But if I'm doing 75 trap bar deadlifts in a row, that's still going <laughs> to be inappropriate, right? Like yeah, yeah. Each piece matters. It just depends on, on how you weigh the pieces, you know, where maybe a four sets of three at a reasonable weight straight bar deadlift makes a lot more sense than 75 straight trap bar deadlifts. Like it, there's no bulletproof to either situation, but it's just one thing might be better than the other for the context and the situation that you're in. Um, it, it matters a lot who you're training. It matters in, in almost every context, every piece of the variable has to come up and have be this like beautiful equation that leads to increases in performance. Like that is our profession is to increase performance. Um, as much as we talk about the, the reduction of injury risk and everything else, it's like, yeah, I might not be doing any harm with this exercise. Right. That also doesn't mean I'm doing any benefit in this yep. exercise. Yeah. <laughs> but I might be doing a lot of benefit increasing somebody's speed or power clean, but I also might be doing a lot of harm. So it's, it's, it's that constant push and pull and, and give and take. And to say that one variable in this equation doesn't matter is, is pretty irresponsible in my opinion. Like well, every variable matters. A hundred percent. And it comes down to, I think the good coaches know what ec each exercise costs, right? Like I'm not going to stray away. Actually, I don't use a whole bunch of back squats, but for my guys that need absolute strength in the squatting pattern, you want to know what the best way for that probably is a back squat. You want to know what I do? It's a double leg back squat. And I know that if we're going to go that heavy ass weight, that's going to be a high 
orthopedic cost on his body, right? Especially for somebody that doesn't do that. They're not in a, if it's a combat athlete, they're not in a pure strength sport. They're in a speed strength sport. So that's probably something they're not used to. And that's going to be a higher orthopedic cost of exercise. But if that's the goal that we need to go after, if that's the goal we need to do, guess what? I'm okay with that orthopedic cost because that helps them achieve their goals right? I need to know what the cost is to know if I'm able, if I'm willing to put that in there, if it's going to help them get where it's going to be, and it's not going to overall put a whole bunch of risk on their system, then that's okay. But if I'm thinking with somebody that has a training age of one year and I want them to back squat 350 pounds, that is too much of an orthopedic cost to throw on there. Whether they think they're strong or not, whether they can do the weight or not, they're probably not using what I need them to use. They're probably just ratcheting their low back in place, locking in that like mid like torso or three or that mid torso um, posterior chain, not actually using what we should be using and actually generating force from the areas we should. So then I would just pick a single leg movement like Mike Boyle's talking about, because I need to teach them movement literacy before I increase their absolute capacity. Well, and I think there's even a ton of like recency bias for that. Like you said, if you have a, a novice athlete, that's never really back squatted before. Um, the same could be said for an athlete that like, let's say they did a lot of back squat, maybe even 18 months ago. Right. And they, they, they're quote unquote trained in the back squat. And then we haven't done anything. We get to an absolute block, absolute strength block. It's like, all right, let's throw the back squat back in. Yeah. You know, that doesn't really work either because there is, <laughs> your body has a lot of um, recency bias, a lot of, you know, specific adaptation and post demands. Like if we haven't been back squatting and then I just throw you into like a maximal strength for the back squat, like it's not a good recipe either. No, um, that's why a lot of our, um, you know, a lot of my mentors have put it in me. Like when you pick your uh, major exercises, keep them consistent, right? Like your athletes gain skills in movements that you're consistent with. Yeah. You know, if we're, if we've been trap our deadlifting for six months and maybe I do think like Austin said, the back squat is a better absolute strength tool, right? Maybe I think that it's still not the better tool if we've been trap bar deadlifting for six months or trap bar jumping for six months, or, or that's the, the ingrained um, atmosphere in our movement literacy. So it's like time and place, you know, decision-making it's like, there are good and bad decisions. Like it's not that every profession has good and bad. There's no way that we can say, you know, you know, everything else doesn't matter. Uh, well, well, an easy example is we, we program for a team, right. And we were just doing a month of programming. Uh, I think it was the last month of programming and we were going through, and we were like, oh, I really, uh, I would like to do this X exercise, but we've been having them do Y exercise for the entire season. We're not going to switch that up at the end of their season, just because we want that stimulus, right? It's movement literacy. We need to think of the same stimulus that we want to achieve and do a movement that they're all relatively good at, right? Which is something that we've been ingraining into them over and over again for an entire season. We, you don't just switch up exercises like the thing that I've seen, I've actually seen this with MMA uh, strength conditioning is people go from, they do an entire like speed strength block. And then two weeks before they start getting into med ball work that the athletes never done before. Yeah. They literally just start doing like med ball work that this athletes never done before. And they're not actually getting the benefits of it. They're not loading the front hip. They're not properly rotating. They're not generating in a ipsilateral pattern. They're breaking their canister. It's if you don't train the skill, I wouldn't do it in a peaking phase. Right. And it, it's, it's almost like you're not trained well enough to get the benefit from anything. You know, it's like, it's like 
somebody that's never struck before jumping into a, a sparring day. You're not, you're going to learn not to get in the face. Sure. But you're not going to actually develop any skills. Then you just do that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right but, isn't, isn't that why you had a black guy two weeks ago? So you have to figure out some of the skills and train it before you try and execute it at a high intensity and try and get a training effect from it. You know, I think that's hundred percent accurate is what you're talking about. The skill transference into the training effect or physiological effect. Um, and I know there are a lot of arguments for exercise variability out there and, and stuff like this, but I'm saying if there's no skill literacy, there's not going to be as effective exercise transfer. Like that's just common sense. Correct. And, and in my mind too, this is another thing. I don't want to go down this rabbit hole because this will make this a very long podcast, but I think the number one thing of transference is trunk loading pattern. I think the, the ability to understand how you stabilize the spine and stabilize the trunk and make that proper canister for all the muscles to pull off of. I think that's the number one level of transference and how it actually applies into your sport to me personally. So if I'm not able to generate that canister, if I'm not able to properly stabilize and properly have a stable structure for all of the muscles to create force and create power off of, does that exercise actually transfer? If I'm doing a power transfer, if I'm doing a force transfer into their MMA or into their striking or into their grappling, I don't think so. So if, if I want to be as effective as possible, I want to train that trunk loading pattern as much as I can throughout their camp, throughout their off season in a way that's going to be similar to their striking or similar in a ipsilateral pattern. That's going to be similar to the rotation they use in their sport. And then just load it up more and more and more and pick the right exercises with the right orthopedic costs to try to make that athlete better at those patterning and better at that trunk stability patterning. Yeah. And I don't disagree with you. Um, I think that, that having some foundational base that connect patterns is, is going to be huge are the two different, you know, areas of work, whether it's physical or skill work. One thing that I, so you got one, now I get one, right? What's, what's the biggest transfer over type of thing. Um, one that I've started to notice more recently is speed of movement. That, that thing that is not usually considered in your typical exercise science or like periodization time curve, but speed of movement, I think has a huge yeah. transference, even more so than like force production or some type of biomechanical sport specificity. I think the speed of movement has a lot more training effect and a lot more to do with um, what comes across from the weight room to training. So that's, you know, your force velocity and your power curve, but yeah. think of exercises as far as how fast is this, athlete's body actually move, you know, and I think that, I think that can help a lot on like a dynamic effort day if we're thinking along those programming type of terms, but how fast is this person's body actually moving? Not necessarily, you know, what does this exercise supposed to elicit? Cause I think that gets to the point of like skill, you know, and skill crossover and training, because I think of a, you know, med ball hip toss or, or even like an overhead throw in my mind, that exercise is executed at a very fast pace or very, very fast speed. Like it's a, it's a speed slash power move. My athlete has never thrown a med ball or doesn't know how to properly throw it into the wall. That movement's going to be slow, you know, yeah. and yep. because that's moving slow, you don't get the training effect. So I think that's, I guess, one of the filters in my mind goes across. It's like, how is this actually going to actually perform the skill? Are they going to slow down? Because I've done a lot with like reactive med ball work off the wall, like where you're trying to throw a fast in the wall, rebound it back. If I don't have any hand-eye coordination to play any ball sports, you know, and I've been grappling and doing MMA my whole life, and you're telling me to throw this ball that's going to bounce back at me at the wall, you think I'm going to do that fast? 
You're going to do it either really slow and apprehensive so you can get the movement down, or you're just going to not catch the ball a lot. And then we'll have to reset and the, you know, the exercise becomes worthless. So um, I think that speed of movement point plays into a lot of programming and a lot of like cost in exercise, if you will. Um, one thing I did want to ask you, Austin, kind of branching from this topic or area, have you noticed one variable? And I, I was saying earlier that every piece of the equation matters, whether it's, you know, volume, load, um, intensity, uh, exercise selection, you know, duration, frequency, things like that. What variable have you noticed that has the biggest effect on an athlete's either readiness or prepared? Prepared, prepared to stepping into the cage, like Um, ability or day to day, day to day, I would say. Okay. Um, That's a good question. I would, I would have to go with either. No, I, I know exactly what it is. It's the ability to lead from the hips, lead movements, lead any movements from the hips. Okay, so not specific like biomechanical. Okay, got you. Like, like literally volume, load. like train. Okay, so training variables. Sure. Like yeah. In programming which, variables. Which one? Which one counts the most? If we're which saying, one? you know, if these people are saying the exercise selection doesn't matter, right? Which one is your t- the highest priority to get right? Ooh, highest priority to get right. I would probably say volume. Yeah, it's, that's where my mind goes as well. Yep, I see that. I see that fall apart too many times where especially especially in combat sports where it's a just keep working until the wheels fall off sport um, where that's it's not necessarily the number one thing that's going to increase performance but it's going to be the number one thing if you have too much volume that decreases performance yeah what else do you got you said volume as well yeah i think volume too and like i think that also leads into a quality of movement and uh discussion talking about absolute capacity versus functional capacity but 100 the volume that you program in the weightlifting program or the physical preparation side of things is i think going to carry the most weight into you know day-to-day readiness into overall fatigue effect and, and things like that so i also i think the overall ability to for volume to do, talk on the positive side, not the negative side of volume is to make skills aerobic. I talked about this like three, three or four podcasts ago, right? Yeah. Um, where you want your skills to be as aerobic as possible. Well, what's a great way to do that? It's to put on a, make it a density circuit, bring in the aerobic component element where they're continuously moving through the patterns, but that typically actually leads to more vo- like to a, to an increase of volume. So as long as you're playing with the lines there, as long as you're, your orthopedic cost to bring everything full circle isn't too high where that's another thing that applies to orthopedic cost, right? It's not just the exercise selection. It's the overall program at which you're doing it in. So as long as you're not overloading, you're not doing a 40 minute density circuit of four exercises and just grinding them into the ground. Again, thing I've actually seen in a program. Um, I, I, I think volume can be used. Volume can be the secret weapon as long as you know how to program it and know how to use it effectively. A hundred percent. You use the volume as a weapon. Like I think of some of my more GPP slash aerobic programs. And it's like, yes, there's an aerobic effect, but this is just skill practice. Like, you know, we're practicing more volume equals more skill acquisition, right? Like that's um, not a mystery that needs to still be found out. Like there's a lot of different ways to go about that, but the more I practice something, the better I'm going to get at it. So within our movement skills, whether that's, you know, creating a stable trunk, whether that's, you know, single leg loading, whether that's hinging, whatever it is, 
if you add it into a density circuit or increase the volume, then you're probably going to get better at that skill as long as your exercise selection makes sense. You know, even if I am doing a 40 minute aerobic circuit, I could probably have dumbbell RDLs in there. Like that, that would probably be okay as long as I pick like, you know, 20, 30 pounds, some small load. But if I pick a 40 minute density circuit and we're doing barbell 225 pound RDLs, <laughs> like not, not good, you know, not right. okay. So. Right. Or, okay. or picks to really, really just fucking jump on the Mike Boyle trains, jump single leg RDLs. There you go. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's just going to be less damage overall. Um, and if you think of orthopedic costs, that's like the definition we was talking about. And I even think like one of the points he made, he's like, I'm not trying to make some grandiose argument. I'm just saying, think more about the exercises you pick. You yeah. I think that's, <laughs> I think that's just a great summary for this whole argument. It's like, yeah. just consider just have what, a brain. what is the best? Cause, um, I think I, I made a post again on the building fighter Instagram of like four or five different variations for a row, like yeah. the pulling pattern. Like there's not one better than the other. But there is certainly one best for this context. Yep. You know, like yep. if I'm just messing around doing any exercise that I want, just want to be quote unquote physically active. Like it doesn't really matter if I do pull ups or bent over rows. But if my athlete, you know, can't stabilize in the hinging pattern, I want to get practice at that. Maybe I pick a bent over row. You know, like yeah. Yeah. it's just pick the confounding variables, and if you can check two or three, four boxes with one exercise, how is it not better than the other exercise? Yep. So feels so that's that's fairly straightforward yeah dude well this was kind of a rant but this was something <laughs> i wanted to get off my chest because i saw a lot of hate getting directed towards mike boyle and and i don't like that because he's an og i'm I, i'm absolutely certain he needs us to defend him and 100 keep him keep him up with his rep no but but i think we got some good points across um and and i do like the idea of orthopedic cost i think that's something that more people need to think of when they do program yeah. but all right well this is building a fighter it's dr ross and shane if you got to get in touch with us all of our information is in the show notes we do have our website is now officially updated so we have uh i think we have seven full programs available um we also have our low back course that is also available so if you have a history of low back pain and want to get your low back strong and your hips mobile in order to get back into grappling Hit us up at buildingafighter.com. That has all of our programs and courses right there. And then be on the lookout in the future with by Q2 of 2022, we should be getting into our actual building a fighter courses or getting close to that, which is going to be a pretty cool offering, which is going to look for strength coaches, skill coaches, healthcare, and dietitians to try to boost up everybody in MMA for the athlete. So this is Dr. Austin Shane, Alex Friedman, and we are out. <laughs> <laughs>